the Congress, now equipped with a Speaker of the House anyway, is trying to do something about government funding for when the continuing resolution expires November 17th. The House is going about it, though, in a unique way. We get details from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, how are they going about it in the House? Well, the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, has said he has gone through basically a hurricane at Category 5 whirlwind of all the things that he's got to do. And, of course, this is one of the top goals that he has to get through uh, in the next few weeks. And, of course, it was also what caused his predecessor, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to lose his post because Republicans thought he was doing too much to reach across the aisle. So that's the balancing act that Mike Johnson has right now. And what he has said is it's interesting. He started out by saying that he wants to go for a short-term spending bill through January 15th. Now, that would have been a non-starter for Kevin McCarthy. And eventually, by saying that he wanted a short-term bill, that's what got him pushed out. But this, everyone knows right now, there's only two weeks left, or less than two weeks now, that there's something has to be done with a stopgap measure. So Mike Johnson is looking at that, but he's also trying to be sensitive to the needs of The hardliners within his Republican conference, he knows that a lot of them don't like having continuing resolutions. And what's interesting is he floated this idea last week of a so-called laddered approach to a continuing resolution. And everybody said, well, what is that? And he tried to explain it. It's an idea that was apparently floated by Maryland Congressman Andy Harris, a member of the House Freedom Caucus, one of the more conservative members. And what it is, is it would allow lawmakers to essentially take each appropriations bill step by step. Uh, They would go through, as they are right now, going through the appropriations process because a lot of Republicans want to get back to regular order. However, it is being strongly criticized by Democrats who say that this really just only causes them to have a possibility of rolling government shutdown deadlines, that instead of having the one that we now have coming up on November 17th, we could potentially have several deadlines once we get through for one agency or a few agencies, then another one would be around the corner. So I think in this case, Speaker Johnson is just trying to listen to his conference, but I just don't think that that one is going to move forward. That does sound kind of arcane. You could say, well, HHS, you come to work. DHS, you stay home because we haven't done your bill yet. Right. Yeah. Everybody that uh, even the people that aren't partisan, the non-Democrats, just the the budget experts just don't really see how that this could come together. Because, as you say, you would have to chip away and have certain departments reporting for work and other agencies not reporting to work. It just seems very, very difficult to see how that would practically come into being. All right. And then, you know, there was the bill in the House to pass the $14 billion for Israel. That was their good news. Their bad news, at least from the Democratic standpoint, was except we're taking it out of the IRS, which just seemed like something that is not going to sail. I think the president threatened to veto that. Right. Exactly. And Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer made it very clear that it is dead on arrival. But here again is a case where Speaker Johnson is trying to get his footing within that very conservative uh, conference that he has. And a lot of them were pushing for some kind of offset. A lot of people said this wasn't an offset, that it was basically going to create more of a deficit problem. And in fact, that was confirmed by the Congressional Budget Office, which came back with an estimate. They were requested to get this from the Democrats, but the CBO came back and said, well, if you cut $14 billion from the IRS, 
you're not going to be able to get more revenue from the IRS. And in fact, that's actually going to balloon the federal deficit by $12.5 billion. But Johnson said no matter, he needed a legislative victory. This was a victory for him, admittedly a short one, but it will allow him to get a little bit of leverage at least, at least to grab onto a little bit of that uh, legislative ledge, if you will, so that when they go to the Senate, they can say, well, we did pass a bill with money for Israel. Now they're going to have to go into a lot more detail related to Ukraine because many Republicans want more money for Ukraine in the Senate particularly. And then there's the issue of Taiwan. And then what Johnson said is he would like to somehow, he he doesn't say that he will not go along with more Ukraine funding, which uh, some of the more conservative members of his conference don't want any money to go to Ukraine. He's leaving that open, but what he wants to do is tie it to more resources for the southern border, which, of course, is a big, big goal of Republicans. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And we've mentioned some military matters, and it looks like the pressure is increasing on Tommy Tuberville because of these military promotions. And golly, there's a lot of career military long-serving people that have been on hold for a long time now. Right. This is really coming to a head. And there was an extraordinary moment. You don't really see this that often anymore on the Senate floor. But Republicans against Republicans on the Senate floor last week Uh, You had Dan Sullivan, who's a Marine Corps member uh, from Alaska. You had Joni Ernst, who's an Army veteran, both of them on the floor blasting Tommy Tuberville, who, by the way, did not serve in the military, saying, you are really punishing these military personnel for something they have nothing to do with. And right now we're close to 370 military promotions that have been held up. And And what Joni Ernst was really upset about is that Tuberville had earlier indicated that if they brought these up individually, that they would actually get a vote. So they tried to bring them up by uh, unanimous consent. They brought more than 60 people up and they read their bios and talked about all the years of service they had. And each time Tommy Tuberville stood up and said he objected so that they couldn't get them through. So part of the reason that this is all pushing to the surface right now and that Republicans are really upset is because Democrats are proposing a change in procedure which would effectively allow them to take a lot of these promotion uh, nominations and put them in block and basically put them in a big group and pass them all at once. And Tuberville has just dug in and said he won't move on this, but a lot of other Republicans know that they're Patience is running out, and Democrats, if they can only get nine Republicans to join them, they could overcome the filibuster, and that potentially could happen. A lot of Republican institutionalists don't like that idea of making a change in procedure, but this is really, really coming to a head now. Interesting. Well, maybe we'll see something break in the next couple of weeks or even this coming week. And also related to the military, the NDAA, they're still not reconciled on that particular one. And now there's a gambit to get uh, housing, child care help for military families in there. Yeah, this was one of the things that was still being worked on, even when there was still the speaker mess and nobody was really in charge in the House. But meanwhile, behind the scenes, as you know, the NDAA usually has bipartisan support. And there's been this effort uh, in conference to try to get a lot of these improvements for housing and child care among the proposals. 
is one that's uh, made by Colorado Democratic Congressman Jonah Goose. He's got a bill that would require the Defense Department to provide temporary housing to military families who've been on an on-base housing wait list for more than 10 days after arriving at a new base. This is a real problem. A lot of military personnel know about this. They're assigned to a new station, and then they get there, and there's nowhere to actually stay. So there's also an effort in the House to do more with affordable housing, be more responsive to complaints about housing facilities. That's been a big problem. I've talked to Senator Tim Kaine about that uh, with military facilities in Virginia. And there's legislation in the House that seeks to get a better grip on what kind of child care programs there are for various military personnel. The House version of the NDAA includes increased funding for military child care and, and tries to make it more affordable. So a lot of these things are still going on behind the scenes amidst all the sometimes chaotic headlines that we hear about coming out of Congress right now. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, 
just to name a few, and you have an amazing career, what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, 
go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. 
there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.